From the hidden secrets of our backyards to the realities of the third world, we take a raw and real look into the challenges and the pursuits of social justice. Welcome to The Point. The Point Podcast is brought to you by ThePoint.life, offering healthcare, entrepreneurship, and education both domestically and internationally. Visit ThePoint.life to find out how you can get involved. Today we cover a topic that makes many of us uncomfortable and inevitably brings tension. But according to one man, tension is part of the call to healing. And the healing that we're talking about? Racial reconciliation. Join our conversation with Chuck Mingo, the founder of Living Undivided, a program that's taken thousands of participants through life-changing moments of racial healing. The program was created by Chuck and his team as a response to present and past injustices surrounding race. In addition to Living Undivided, Chuck is also a teaching pastor at one of the largest churches in America and spent almost a decade in the corporate world at Procter & Gamble. We invite you to get uncomfortable with us as we explore this topic today. Please welcome Chuck Mingo. You did not grow up in Ohio, so how did you get there? Yeah, so no, I grew up in Philadelphia, so that's where I'm from and still have a bunch of family back in Philly. And my path to Ohio, in short, is I worked for Procter & Gamble for 10 years before I became a pastor. Procter & Gamble's headquartered in Cincinnati. So my first promotion was to Cincinnati. Wife is from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So we were both kind of East Coasters. And I remember telling her, because like I moved and then I asked her to marry me like within a year of, you know, being here. And I remember telling her like, hey, it's like prison. I'll go to Cincinnati, (laughs) but I'll do well. And I'll get out for good behavior. And then we can move somewhere else in the country. We have to stay stay in the Midwest. (laughs) But literally over time, we began, I got those opportunities to move out of Cincinnati and just found ourselves wanting to be here and really just feeling called to what God was doing in our church. That's what got me to Cincinnati. And God had a different purpose. And so after being here and saying no to those opportunities, eventually answered the call to ministry and came on staff at Crossroads Church here in Cincinnati. And so, yeah. That's very cool. And so Undivided, did it happen gradually or was it like you moved to Ohio and you had some interesting <laughs> interactions and you were like, whoa, we need to take care of this or it would tell like, uh, how it get started? You know, it's interesting. The answer is kind of both. It actually happened over time. But I moved to Cincinnati at the end of 2000. And in 2001 was when Stephen Roach, Cincinnati police officer, shot and killed Timothy Thomas. And so all of a sudden we had unrest in our city. We had a curfew. So if you think about it, 2020 happened in Cincinnati in 2001 Mm. in terms of like, there have been some other Roger Owensby, other people who have been killed under some kind of shady circumstances with Cincinnati police. And so I remember coming into the city, you know, it's, it's not Philly. I knew that new Midwest knew it was different, but then within a couple of months of being here, all of a sudden there's a curfew and there's unrest and there's like, did the police shoot him this way because he's black and all these, it's just, yeah. I remember that moment very clearly because for me, I, I got calls from my family saying like, when are you coming back to Philly? I know you're not going to stay in a city that feels like it's 1960, right? Right, right. So I had that experience in 2001. I was still working at Proctor, continued to be a part of Crossroads. Undivided happened in 2015. So in 2015, our church every year, we do kind of a series on steroids where everybody gets in a small group, everybody does an app. And in 2015, it was called The Brave Journey. And the premise was Jesus inviting Peter to walk out, walk on water, get out of the boat. 
And we were challenging everyone to think about what that is in your life. And so for me, um, this would have been about nine months after Ferguson had happened. Mm -hmm. And then two years or so after Trayvon Martin. So again, it was just another moment in our country at that point where racial tensions were high. And I just saw what in my mind felt like the church choosing to take a backseat as opposed to leading Mm. when it comes to racial healing. And so in 2015, we do the brave journey and I really felt the call to be a voice for racial reconciliation in Cincinnati. That's how I was thinking about it at the time. I didn't know what that meant, but the next Sunday I was preaching and I said that to 20,000 of my closest friends, as I jokingly say, you know, said it to the whole church. And I said, I don't know that this is as much my calling as our calling. I think we're called to this. And over the next really year, but specifically concentrated nine months, we created what is now living undivided and, you know, had our church become the place where we begin to figure out how do we talk about this? And then not just how do we talk about it, but how do we engage in justice? Because there are ways for the church to pursue racial healing and justice in communities all across the country. And so that really was kind of the seedbed of what is now living undivided and the courageous love movement. Oh, I love it. In a former podcast, you mentioned like the call is to tension in a sense. I don't know if you remember that, but I thought that was so powerful because I think, you know, and I would love for you to expand on this more, but the idea of like, is the church not getting involved because we don't want to offend anybody because we don't want to say the wrong thing because we don't want to be uncomfortable. And then I love that you were like, well, actually (laughs) being uncomfortable is part of it. It totally is. I mean, you know, I, I do think that the call is to tension. Um, I just was on a call with a friend of mine today and he does similar work, bridge building work. And we were saying like, there's really not a demand problem in the sense of like, people see the problem. Like, yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't talk to many people who are like, really? You think there's a problem? <laughs> like, that's usually, not, that's usually right? not where the conversation goes, right? That's a good way to think about it, yeah. Yeah, we all see the trouble we're in. Like yeah. Nehemiah said, you see the trouble we're in? We all see it. Mm-hmm. I think there's a courage problem. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think that, well, I would say there's a courage and a comfort problem. I think the comfort problem is if you are indirectly or directly benefiting from the status quo, What's your motivation to change it? And so I do think that's a very real dynamic, even in the church, that particularly if you're, you know, if you're a white middle-class person who has been able to succeed in your life without needing to interact with people of color in degrees, you're removed from this. And there's a distance that you can have on this. You know, by the way, no black, indigenous, or person of color has that choice in America. They have to deal with it. But I also think there's a courage problem. I think that particularly in our highly polarized context right now, where everything gets politicized, everything gets to the extremes, it takes courage for faith leaders to step into that and speak real truth Mm -hmm. that is uncomfortable, to speak real truth that challenges people's view of even how they view the scriptures or how they view our country. And, And so I do think there's a courage problem. And one of the things that I would hope our work is doing is creating spaces where people can grow in courage and in connection with stories that are different from theirs. But to your point, that means coming into an environment that has tension. Like we often say, when we do our Living Undivided cohorts, we say, this is a brave space and we want to make it a brave space. Mm -hmm. We can't make it a safe space because quite frankly, it's not safe to talk about race in America. It's not. That's good. Yeah. 
but it can be a brave space. And I believe as followers of Jesus, we're called to lean into that courage, into that bravery and talk about it, talk about it biblically and act more equity and justice. Cause I think that's all through the scriptures. Mm. In your ebook, The Listening Leader, you mm-hmm. say that conflict of racial tension is a necessary and overdue response to a disparity that's lasted too long. For the listeners who who might be white middle class people from you know the Midwest who haven't had necessarily a personal or intimate experience with it, can you give us a bit of like a backstory of, you know, the idea even that racism is socially constructed, right? Like why, how did racism begin? Like, why did we choose, oh, it's the color of your skin and that's how we're going to divide people, you know, as opposed to class systems and things like that? Yeah. Wow. Well, I'll try to do that in brief. I mean, I think (laughs) (laughs) one of the pieces of what we do in our work is we do history. We talk about history, and I think it's important that we understand the history of how we got here. Mm-hmm. So I'd say a couple things on that. First of all, I would say I think America's original sin, while we could say it's racism, I think it's actually greed. Mm. And as I think about how this came to be, that's important for us to reckon with. There was an economic advantage to creating a racial hierarchy. That's why we landed here as a country. Mm-hmm. The economic advantage was free labor. The economic advantage was the ability to take land from the indigenous tribes without remorse Mm -hmm. because we effectively othered them, right? We saw them as less than, well, we, (laughs) those who were making those decisions saw people as less than and, and had to, in fact, to treat them as poorly as they did. And so when I think about how that racial hierarchy started, I think about things like Bacon's Rebellion, you know, you're going back to the 1600s, where in Virginia, you had the slave codes that came out of Bacon's Rebellion when wealthy landowners realized if we don't find a way to divide the poor, mm-hmm. quite frankly, who were at that point before integrated across color, across race, marriages, relationships, community. But when they recognized that there are more of them than there are of us, they found that race was a way to divide the poor. And that's how we got black codes. And that's how we got the codes that created some of the racial hierarchy that continue to be perpetuated in our country and in other parts of our country. So I do think that we have to reckon with the fact that this was a constructed division. Mm. And I want to say that's different. You know, saying that race is a social construct, which it is, is different than devaluing the God-given diversity that's been put into humankind. And so I always want to say, like, don't forget that John in Revelation 7, 9 sees a vision of heaven. And he sees this in the first century, right? So he's not seeing it from an American 20th century lens. He's seeing it from a first century lens. And he says, I see people of every language, tribe, nation, and tongue. That word nation is the word ethnos. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Great Commission when he says, go into all nations, all ethnos. So, So there is an appreciation of diversity and difference all throughout the scriptures. And I believe it's part of God's design. What we have done is rather than see that as evidence of the image bearing of people, we've diminished their image bearing status based on these differences. And so that's the sin. That's the miss. The miss is not that there's difference. The miss is what we've done with difference and how we've created a power and hierarchy structure that, you know, prejudicially disfavors people based on these differences. Mm, That's so good. So when we think about that, how do we, (laughs) I mean, this is a loaded question. So feel, feel free to break it down as needed, but how do we, (laughs) 
again, in your ebook, you mentioned empathy requires understanding and understanding starts with the posture of listening. So as you just mentioned, there's this idea of like inclusion and equity and equality. So how do we do that, but also respect and celebrate the differences of each other? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think about, I mean, again, I, for me, this is rooted in my faith. This is rooted in the teachings of scripture. And I think this is really akin to what Paul was describing when he described the church as one body with many parts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. There's a beauty in the unity of one body, but there's also the valuing of diversity of many parts, right? He says, you know, what would happen if we were all feet? What would happen? If we-, we need those diversities. And so I do think that this is why I think that the church can lead on this as opposed to play in the back, because we've got the DNA for this. We've got the playbook for how to do this. I mean, you know, every church in the New Testament that we interact with in our scriptures from Acts all the way through was a multiracial, multi-ethnic church. So the church has been this way from its foundation. You know what? We only get six chapters into the book of Acts before the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews are having differences, right? And that was the birthing of the, you know, what we would call the deacons or the servants of the church. The church in Antioch was specifically multi-ethnic. I mean, you read the names of the people in that church. It's, you know, some of those are from North Africa. Some of those are from the Greek parts. And certainly you had the Jewish contingency there. And isn't it interesting that that's the church that births Paul and Barnabas. And that's the church that launches church planting. And that's the church that, quite frankly, is responsible for you and I, unless you're Jewish, really coming into relationship with Jesus. And so I just think we oftentimes overlook the rich story of the church of Jesus Christ and how it has always been a way to demonstrate to the culture, the beauty within diversity and the unity that can come within diversity as well. So I just think like, for me, I want people who are followers of Jesus to really root themselves in the story of the good news and the story of the church. Cause there's so many points that we can draw from to help us know how to lead and navigate in this moment. Mm, yes. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I just got excited about talking about that. So maybe no, no, I'm good. I don't think there, you know, I don't think there is an answer, but <laughs> in general, but that absolutely makes sense and, and definitely sheds light on it to say, like, yeah, wait, this is all the way through scripture. Somehow we lost our way along the way, like a long time ago. And now we're having to bring some reconciliation to that. I was blown away by this statistic, but I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you started one of your first classes of Living Undivided with 1,200 people. Yes. And there was a statistic, and I'm judging real hard now, so forgive me, Lord, but (laughs) that 50% of people have never had a different race over for dinner? Yeah, so we did a a pre-survey. Of those 1,200 people, and nearly 50%, it was a little bit south of 50%, had never had a person of a different race over to their home for a meal. And I, I referenced that because, again, this is, in a, this is in a church that when we launched Undivided was probably 20 plus percent diverse. Like, it was predominantly white, but it was like, you know, I mean, and, and if you think about just the way statistics work in churches, if you're 20% or higher, you actually qualify as a multi-ethnic church in America, just the way that the sociologists have kind of measured that. Okay. So this is a diverse in community, right? And yet in that community where people have worshiped together, many have gone on mission trips together, all of those things are happening 
I thought it was just very eye-opening that nearly 50% hadn't done a very simple, but also a very intimate thing of having another person of a different race over to their home. And it speaks to the geographic divisions in a city like Cincinnati, which is true for a lot of cities. And so if you think about where your relationships get formed, they get formed through the school your kids go to and the places where you eat and drink and play, you know, all that stuff. And so, so there's a lot of that geographic difference that was evidenced in that number. And so that was one of the things we said, in fact, when we did this the first time and for the first several years, we always ended with a meal at yeah. one of the members' homes because <laughs> yes. we were like, we can fix that. We're gonna, we're gonna right. that. That's like data we can do something <laughs> with. Yeah. We're going to do mean, that different. <laughs> that is great. I also think like people are just missing out on good food, you know? <laughs> oh my goodness. They absolutely are. I mean, you know, I think about in my life, it's, it's interesting. Food is such a great connector in that sense, right? Um, I think about all the different ethnic foods I've had over my life. And to think about any of them being absent from my experience, yes. I'm missing out. I'm yes. missing out. Yes. I always make a joke because like my adult life has been fairly cultured, but I grew up in a small, small town of like a thousand people in Minnesota. And my mom's spice cabinet literally had salt and pepper in one cabinet and the garlic salt was in the other cabinet because it was just too strong of a smell <laughs> that she didn't that she didn't want it like wow interfering <laughs> with the taste of anything so uh, <laughs> so if that gives some context to it does give style, some context yes yeah, like ketchup <laughs> spicy in the midwest so <laughs> but I think I think too like it's interesting because you also hold people accountable in saying like that geography is not an excuse, you know, for the lack of diversity. And so you suggest finding other influences. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do an exercise around this to try to help people break out of what we call echo chambers. And so, I mean, there are ways to expose yourself to different contexts. So, you know, we challenge people to think about the books that you read, just simply like, you know, is the last book you read from an author who has your same lived experience? And what would it look like to read authors who have different lived experiences from you? You know, we think about the places where you obviously take in your media as another way to kind of diversify your perspectives and point of view. But, you know, we also encourage people to the point like, hey, go to that ethnic restaurant on the other side of town that you've never experienced before, but you know, is there. And don't just go in and order a meal, but like, have a conversation. Yeah. Talk to the owners. I mean, a lot of those tend to be family-owned establishments, right? And they, they've they got a story. And so we do think that there are ways that you can choose to break out of your echo chamber. And I love Brian Stevenson as a hero to mm-hmm. probably a lot of people, certainly to me, in work like this. And he talks about the need to get proximate to the problems we're trying to solve. It's really difficult to solve problems at a distance. But when you, you know, I mean, I think about your experience, right? Like, you have a perspective on Haiti that others can't have mm-hmm. because they haven't had the proximity that you've had to the experience. Mm-hmm. And that changes a person forever, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. an interaction and a story and experience like that changes you forever. And it can change you in some really good ways. Mm, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I just recorded an episode with a woman who's the head of the Muslim Women's Organization here in Orlando. And we talked about how you have stereotypes in your head, you know, of what you believe people say or do or believe. And I think it's interesting sometimes to challenge somebody to say like, Hey, have you met a Muslim before? Like, do you know their name? 
<laughs> like, have right. you, you know, and I think about like the small town of Minnesota where I'm from and how there's this massive refugee population of Somalians and there's a lot of yes. cultural tension around that extreme cultural tension. And it's interesting because I'll say like, and having been somebody that has lived in another country, you recognize like, oh, I do rude things all the time. Didn't know I did it. You know, like mm-hmm. all these cultural <laughs> contexts. But again, like challenging people to say like, have you ever asked one of them, how's your day? Like, yeah. <laughs> where are you from? Hey, like, how was your experience? And so, yeah, that proximity of just getting to know somebody you find out that we're we're not that different. Like we have families, we have kids, we all go to sleep at night. We all wake up Mm -hmm. and eat coffee. Like it's it's all the same, but so for those that are listening and this has been on, you know, their heart for a while. And we have a lot of leaders that are listeners and people who run organizations. Give us a quick walkthrough of what it would look like, like the six week process. Yeah. Love to do that. So we start with, we call it week zero. And so before anybody ever joins, and you know, we do these via Zoom, so we can do them digitally or we can do them in person. Before you start the six-week session, there's a just a 30-minute video that kind of gives you context for what to expect. And we speak to some of the common concerns that people of color might have in a space like this, okay. that, you know, am I going to have to come and reteach and those kinds of things. We also speak to common concerns that white people might have, and even some of the common challenges that people have coming into the space. So we feel like that's a really good setup. And then when you come in, it's six weeks, two hours a week. And those experiences include a combination of things. First of all, we have incredible, incredible video content. We use art and music and other things. So it's a highly engaging two hours. It flies by for people. Mm. And usually in that week, there is some common experience, a provocative experience that's meant to get people talking and processing their own stories and their experiences. That's always a part of a week. And then we break people into smaller groups, groups of, you know, five to six people. And they'll be in those groups every week for a period of the two hours, kind of going deeper and discussing and processing. And so it's a really great way for people to kind of have a big picture kind of teaching, if you will have an experience and some discussion, but then get into smaller groups where there's a level of kind of, you know, depth of communication and connection that can happen. And then in between the weeks, there are a couple of things that we'll encourage people to do. Like the first week afterwards, we encourage people to get with somebody and just grab coffee or jump on a Zoom call and just get to know more of their story. So there's some activities like that that happen in between the weeks. And then at the end of the six weeks, really um, weeks four, five, and six, we're inviting people to think about what is your action going to be on the other side of this? So we would say, We've been having a lot of conversations about race and we need to continue to talk about it. But there's also this thing in Micah 6, 8 about doing justice, yeah. <laughs> right? Not just talking about justice. Right. And so we usually work with a church or an organization ahead of time to identify two to three what we call on-ramps, which are actionable steps people can take together, ideally, in that group to pursue more racial justice, more healing in their community. And we're encouraging people to declare what are you going to do next? And so I just finished doing a cohort with a bunch of people from across the country. And it was my first time being a true participant. I facilitated this a ton of times, but I got to be a true participant because we got oh, a team of facilitators. Yeah. So I got to be in the small groups and experience the dynamics. And yes, I'm totally biased, but I also believe what we do is very unique, powerful, and transformative. Mm-hmm. And I would just encourage anybody who's thinking about this work, who's thinking about how can I bring something like this to my church, to my organization, we're at undivided.com. Find us, connect with us. 
learn more because it's a powerful way for people to step into, again, a brave space, pursuing racial solidarity, healing, and justice. Mm, I love it. Can you leave us on an up note, maybe a story of transformation that you've seen from this? There's so many, but I'll leave you with one that just deeply encourages me. Actually, can I give you two? Please do. (laughs) I will give you two. I will give you two. I could give you more than two, but I'll give you two. (laughs) I'll give you two because I think they speak to different aspects of what we see happen in this experience. So the first is, and I'll just, I won't use her name. I don't know if I have permission to use her name, although she's in the book that I'm releasing next year. So she'll be in that. You can find out her name. What's the book going to be called so we can watch? It'll be called Living Undivided. There we go. (laughs) Loving Courageously for Racial Justice. So, um, yeah. So she was in our experience, an African-American woman, And she would tell you that growing up, she really kind of learned early that the whiter she could present herself, Mm. the better that would be for her. And so she had kind of this conflict around that, but really just kind of unresolved. She changed her name to be more palatable for people, like all of that. And so she goes through our content and experiences and she said it was so healing for her. And it helped her kind of reclaim who she was at a deeper level And so one of the things she did as kind of a symbol of like, hey, this is a new day, is she cut off all her hair. Wow. And now it's like, it's its natural state. And she talked about like, I wouldn't have done that had it not been for this deep healing experience I had going through Living Undivided. So that's one story of many of just the healing that can come Mm -hmm. in this space. The last story I'll share though is Ahmed Deeply, African-American man who went through Living Undivided years ago at Crossroads, 2020 hits, murder of George Floyd happened and he had this irresistible urge to invite his police chief out to lunch to talk about what happened in a Cincinnati suburb that's like 99% white Uh and so police chief says yes Chief Mills says yes and they meet and talk about how they're processing and feeling about George Floyd and Chief Mills is talking about the things they're doing in their force to make sure that doesn't happen in their community and Ahmed kind of like has this prompting to say hey let me talk about this other thing that I did at my church And he talks about living undivided. And Chief Mill says, you know what? We're doing a lot. We're not doing that. I'd be interested in learning more. So cool. And so in the spring of 2021, I got to facilitate a working undivided experience. So we have a version of this where we don't do the faith grounding. It's more like, you know, secular oriented, but still values based. And I got to facilitate 10 white police officers and 10 black citizens in a community for six weeks. And wow. you can imagine that the first week you could hear a pin drop. It was not, I'm thinking, it was tension. It oh was my tension. gosh. That's like tension. putting you on the front lines. Like, oh okay, goodness. do I really believe in this work I'm doing? Cause here exactly. it is. <laughs> here it is. But by the end of it, Callie, the relational connections, the honesty, the, the just joy, this group wanted to be together. They wound up having a celebration because we had to do it. It's during the pandemic. So they had to do it. As soon as things lifted up, they had a big cookout where they all got together and they're continuing to do work in their community to make sure it's safe for everyone. They're going to do another round of working undivided in the fall. Like we just see that this is the kind of work that helps people be architects of change in their own communities. And that's what we get excited about. We just want to be a tool that God is using with his people to bring people into spaces where we see more racial healing, more equity and more justice in our world and in our country. We think that can happen. And we think that, you know, the heart of Jesus is totally, totally behind that happening. Mm, So good. I can't wait to see how this continues to go across the nation. And I really hope that, you know, I pray that it continues to grow and thrive and blossom. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
so much for joining us today. We hope you learned a lot. I know I sure did. A special thank you to Chuck and his team for preparing such incredible curriculum for us to learn from. Get in touch with him at undivided.com or follow him on his social at Chuck Mingo, M-I-N-G-O. You can find these links in our show notes as well at lapointe.life. And be sure to follow us on social media as well at Lapointe Foundation. Until next time, keep on fighting for justice.